Everyone thinks I'm uh, I'm podcasting from like a, a cabin. Yeah. Terrible yeah. coffee or something. I always throw up uh, the Unabomber's shed. <laughs> yeah. I, I I podcast from a 10 by 16 shed in my backyard that I converted half into an office. And there's a dynamite under it, right? Mm-hmm. Welcome to Namely 90s. The podcast that takes you back to the time before smartphones, Google, and Y2K. Join your hosts as they relive the pop culture that shaped a generation and the parts that many people wish they could forget. Listen in to the conversation about how the decade defined those who spent their childhood there and how it shaped them as adults. So... Turn down the grunge and dial up the internet. Let's get started. It's time for Namely 90s. That's right. You're listening to Namely 90s. My name is Andrew and over there is Brandon. That's me. Uh, You can find us online at Namely90s.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Namely90s with the 90s. You can also find this show on YouTube every Monday at Namely90s.com slash YouTube. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash namely 90s and get signed up for one of the support levels. Um, And well, I guess welcome to our big September special uh, doing these monthly specials. And uh, here we are in September. So um, this time we are happy to welcome a guest. We have guests sometimes. It's exciting. Yeah. A a (laughs) non-Christmas guest. It's... uh... It, it's it's very cool. Um, we we get to talk to Andy Fry. Um, I forgot to check if that's the pr- correct pronunciation before we started. So <laughs> good start. Uh, yeah, yes, it's a company, but a no relation. Uh, fair enough. Um, he's a sports writer, journalist, and now author uh, with his new book, 90 Days in the 90s. Uh, tagline being a rock and roll time travel story, which is very cool and very intriguing and very on brand for us so <laughs> yeah uh, welcome to the show thanks yes, welcome you, you guys and uh appreciate you having me here virtually with you yeah i think thanks for coming on um you've you've written a book you've, you've written for rolling stone espn uh you're, you're currently a sports uh business writer for Forbes yeah I'm a uh, contributor I do about five pieces a month and it primarily it's you know it's sports business angle and I took it to talk to a lot of uh, famous famous athletes or retired sports legends so very little music now but try to keep it rock and roll nonetheless very cool um, I think most people would, su- would suggest that writing for these publications is uh, sort of you know the pinnacle of of uh, journalism uh, you know, when I hear something like, oh, he writes for Forbes, I'm like, oh, wow, this guy, this guy is actually, he's writing some stuff. There's a legitimate paywall there. Uh, (laughs) How many articles can you read? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, But so what, uh, what, what was your journey to, uh, to writing for these publications? I mean, how did you get here? Well, it's funny because about a decade ago, I still work in a a cubicle. Um, I, writing was always kind of a hobby for me. And I think, you know, generally writing, I think, is either you are a writer or you're not. I mean, I, I think a long time ago, I heard a lot of people come out of college like, I want to be a writer. And I think what, what you mean by that is professionally, you want a full time job. Uh, you know, and we're in the middle of the gig economy now where it's it's not unusual for, I mean, hell, PGA work. I'm not I'm kind of in the middle politically. I'm not too conservative. And uh, but I do love 
some PG O'Rourke's books from the nineties. Cause he just like, he rips on everybody and um, <laughs> he's a little less pompous now, but he's doing like, he's a contributor like I am, but for the daily beast. So, uh, you know, everybody's doing it and it's okay. It's okay to have, you know, I, I'm much more happy having like four, four jobs and having <laughs> one job sitting in a cubicle smiling and, and dialing. I was pretty good at sales when I was in it, but you know, I always had the undercurrent of having a, a hobby that I thought was, I, all of our hobbies, I think, are constructive, provided that, you know, you're not hurting anyone. I was just able to kind of keep with it. And, you know, like in the 90s, we could talk about this. I had a zine when everybody else had a zine, and it got me into some shows for free and got some free CDs and, uh, you know, some some cool things that came out of that. And then when everybody got a website, my best friend and I, who's also a writer, same guy who helped me do in the zine, we, we had a website, you know, like a blog before it was called a blog. And I think I just kept that going. And, um, you know, back probably in about 2009 when I jumped on Facebook and everyone was kind of mass communicating um, and people in my generation, Generation X, were like, oh, wow, I can talk to somebody I haven't seen in 20 years. I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be these things called notes where you do like 10 things about me and you know, my favorite food is. And then you tag a bunch of your friends and mm-hmm. the hell out of them and hopefully they would <laughs> And I was always doing mine about sports like, you know, top five most embarrassing moments in sports or something like that. And would tag my friends and I had a couple of people, you know, say to me, yeah, you're right. Pretty good. Maybe you should, you know, give it, give it a go and try it out. And I think my goal back then, probably between like late 2009, when I, when I first kind of got into it again and 2011 was like, if I could publish something in the next five years, that'd be a huge goal. And I blew through that goal pretty quickly and just kind of kept, you know, kept looking for opportunities and, that's how it unfolded. And, you know, I went from talking to people kind of doing these strange uh, extreme sports pursuits or something that's off the beaten path to eventually, you know, getting to interview uh, Johnny Bench and Annika Sorenstam. And, you know, uh, someone in the news right now is pretty heavily in the golf golf news. Uh, Greg Norman got to meet him in person, got to talk to like nice. some of my favorites, like Dr. J. I grew up in Philly. I got to talk to him for 20 minutes about uh, basketball and it's been kind of all over the place. And in, in, in the mix, I also writing for actually for ESPN, I got to talk to some, some, uh, what I like to say, aging rock stars talking about <laughs> tankerings and it's all been good. And, you know, eventually as a writer, you decide either you have a book in you or you want to see if you can pull off writing a book. And that's really where the book came out of just sort of all that interviewing and writing experience and try to make something of it um, in a different vein. That's, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I guess Andrew, where we went wrong with blogging in the 2000s is we didn't use the notes feature on Facebook. <laughs> and I'm not sure we were that good at it, but it was no, fun. You uh, know, it's okay to not be good at something as long as you're having fun doing it, I suppose. Oh yeah. So, so what, um, what, what led you to the nineties is the theme of this book. Well, so I love 90. I mean, I love all kinds of music, but, uh, and I try not to be one of those people who, you know, I stopped listening to new music at a certain point. Like I've got a lot of classic <laughs> rock fan friends who just like, they don't go past even like, I think a lot of these guys, it's like, if you had an older brother who's like graduated high school in 90 or let's say 84 and I graduated in 1990, like all those guys listen to the Eagles journey, you know, Springsteen, it would be a far stretch for them to like come to a Pearl Jam concert with you, which I think Pearl Jam, you know, they've been around for now. I would attend yeah. the anniversary of 10's release was, last week and that was 30 years ago so uh i try to always be open-minded to listen to new things and i've, I've just graduated grad, gravitated in the 90s because i think it was sort of you know i was in my 20s and i was newly an adult and i got to you know you get to go out and do what you want to do and you're, you're unleashed from the uh 
I guess the shackles from um, you know being a suburban kid with with two parents and a you know Volvo in the driveway or whatever. You're <laughs> on your own in the city. Yeah, you know, you've cut, but one of the themes of the novel is actually I kind of it, we pl- I treat the '90s as this golden age, and I think all pe- all people in America have like, oh, it was better back then, and mm-hmm. you know, when I was young, everything was great, and you forget about you know being broke and living in an apartment with three or four other people, and you know, um, having one good pair of jeans, and and, and that's it, and so yeah. The 90s was I wanted to play with the music and the scene here. I, I've always felt I've lived in Chicago since 1994. I always felt like Chicago was an underrated music city because, mm-hmm. um, okay, maybe it's not live 24-7 like Austin, but we've had our legendary venues and still have some of them still around. You know, like we, we've have, we have Metro, we have the Empty Bottle, and I don't think they're any less important than you know, CBGB in New York or Whiskey Go in LA because, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're in bands that you know, Smashing Pumpkins played at Lounge Jacks in front of 12 people. And I remember recent work with a guy who was like, yeah, believe it or not, I was, I was there. Smashing Pumpkins was nobody. My friend dragged me to the show in 1990. And, you know, the band was substantive enough that you, he remembered, you know, when they finally got big three years later. Um, I just wanted to capture all of that and ch- kind of put it in a context of, I mean, I can't talk about Chicago when it was like in the 70s or 80s, but I can definitely talk about it in the 90s. And also, we can talk about this. There's a lot of things that changed. I mean, I was the first part of the first generation that got emails addresses. And then there are certain dynamics that we kind of take for granted today that were new to us that I wanted to talk about in 90 days in the 90s that not for the sake of Pollyanna, but, um, you know, just to, to kind of depict a different time where things were new and exciting and the things we take for granted today, whether it's streaming our favorite band or yeah. you know picking up a, a phone when your friend calls you at work to goof around for an email, you know, capture all that in 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 uh, in a situation where you get to meet Darby and kind of hang out with her for you know three hundred and fifty pages or so. It's such a yeah. It, to your point, it's such a transitional time where it's like everything was being invented. Where now it seems like everything's kind of been invented. But I think everyone feels that way when they're in their in the present time, but it's like the last discrete decade, you know, you've got the seventies, get the eighties, get the nineties after that. It's just sort of a blur. I don't think, I'm not sure we're ever going to have a definitive decade where it's like, Oh, this is what it was like during this decade. Because I mean, what really was the two thousands through through 2010s? I mean, yeah, who knows? Pop punk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But you know what? You don't get an image in your mind when someone says the 2000s. It just yeah. it, it doesn't evoke anything. Well, really. We might have like a pre-crazy and a post-crazy Kanye, I think, in pop music. <laughs> that's true. Uh, we might. Like my 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 son is 16. And uh, I remember he was like, you know, I don't like this Burma rap. I'm like, you mean mumble rap? And like, <laughs> yeah, like I know people don't play hi-hat cymbals that fast. I know it's fake. Um, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a white kid who grew up on the north side of Chicago. So it's <laughs> different from being from maybe a different community where like, but I, I, we, we both still have this problem where we think of like Drake is from Canada and he was a Disney, he was on the Disney channel. Like how <laughs> can, is that where hip hop is? Is that, you know, we're, we're placing from the streets from uh, with, you know, from live from Burbank. I, I don't know. It's just kind of a weird thing to think about. And yeah, there's going to be different ways we will perceive time, maybe not in nicely sliced decades, but yeah, I hope I captured at least a little bit of that. Uh, I liked your point about Chicago because Chicago, like all that they use Chicago for is the background for medical and cop dramas. It's, it's a little out yeah. of control, but uh, the music scene, I like that. That's, that's, that's not something people are hitting a lot of. 
Uh, well, you've, you've probably seen High Fidelity, actually. High Fidelity movie came out in 2000, I believe. I knew a bunch of people were extras in the film. I knew it was going to be here, and I was a fan of Nick Hornby. Um, in part because I really love Fever Pitch, and I would read, you know, I don't, I don't read a lot, but I read his books in the 90s. And, you know, High Fidelity, the book takes place in London. And as you know, Hulu did a series just for one season with uh, Zoe Kravitz that takes place in Brooklyn, which is very now. But yeah, I think Chicago is kind of underrated, and the people who know it and love it kind of want to sing its praises. And, you know, uh, maybe in the back of my mind, I want to be the the studs turkle of the 21st century. Who knows? But, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot there that, uh, that that people can can enjoy just you know hearing about Chicago and the story. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, um, can you give us a brief description of the book? Yeah, so it's uh, Darby is uh, you know roughly my age, maybe maybe a little, little bit younger. She is a Gen X person who um, she kind of has a, a moment like a midlife crisis in a way in that. You know, it's her career stalls in Wall Street. Her she splits up with her fiance. Um, right about the same time, her uncle died. Her favorite uncle dies, and she feels bad that she hasn't kept in touch with her uncle um, for a while. Is you know just getting busy with life, and uh, she finds out that she inherits his record store right when everything falls apart in New York. So she moves back to Chicago. You kind of start the scene there, and uh, you know, she's living in the apartment above the record store. The record store is like killing it. It's sort of like a mecca and. You know, she's getting back into moving back to Chicago where she went to college and where she lived for a little while before she just kind of everything fell apart there and she absconded in New York. So she's getting back to Chicago, kind of becoming a local again, uh, kind of reignites her love for music and, and some nostalgia, of course. And uh, one of the so, so subplot, one of the things that I remember about the 90s and I mentioned that when we all first got email was it was sort of the heyday of urban legends. So we all got emails at work. I worked for a company that had like, you know, you're a monitor at, at AOL.com. And then we all got our individual email addresses, which was huge. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, within about a month, then you're getting emails from friends about like, hey, you know, there's all these cool things that you didn't know about. And here's some urban legends. And two of the things were like, one, the Nigerian prince who's exiled who wants to give you $470 million. That popped up eventually. Uh, there's also... Microsoft is doing a usage, a usage test. All you got to do is forward this email to 20 people and you might get a check for, you know, my cousin got a check for 10 grand from Bill Gates himself. And there's a lot of that. So along the side of that rail, uh, there's this legend about the gray line, which is a, a line of the CTA, the Chicago Transit Authority trains here. That, you know, people say it goes back to the past. It's It's been bouncing around for a while. And because she's in the thick of being back in Chicago, she starts hearing urban legends about this thing again. Uh, lo and behold, there's a, a gray line stop under her store, and she has the ability to go back in time and maybe fix some things and maybe correct her life. But uh, I suppose as any one of us Gen Xers who love music would, she goes back to the 90s and gets stuck having a little bit too much of a good time and kind of not, <laughs> not dealing with her shit and not dealing with uh, you know the re- real reason that she thought she was there. But you know, there's a whole uh, set of adventures that come beyond that come beyond her rearrival in 1996 and in the 90s. So, yeah, it's time travel fiction with um, a heavy dose of music and pop culture. Of 90s, of course. You know, I didn't plan to mention 250, 300 bands, and I, I don't think I overdo it for people who aren't like alternative <laughs> rock nut jobs like me. I think people can follow it. You know, obviously, everybody's heard of like Pearl Jam and U2 and. Uh, yeah, I think you can keep pace without being a record store junkie. Mm-hmm. But I guess, like I said before, it, it gives people the opportunity to kind of tag along with the character and sort of go along with the ride, with them for the ride and 
meet some strange people and have some fun times again. And that's really what it's very much a dazed and confused approach. I love that movie. It's one of the pinnacle movies in the nineties and you're just hanging out with the characters for a day. That's what dazed and confused is about. And I kind of wanted to see if I could pull that off. I think you even referenced dazed and confused at one point in the book, didn't you? Oh yeah. At least one time. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> times. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I, 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 as a somewhat of a music junkie myself, I really enjoyed seeing like, oh, I know that band. I know that band. I don't know that band. I'll have to look them up later. Um, like I kind of, I, I felt, I felt like I was somewhere between Darby and Spacey as, as the, uh, music knowledge of, of you kind of just exudes into the book but it's not just your music knowledge that uh shows up through your writing also your sports knowledge there's a lot of for a for a for a book about time traveling to kind of go back and relive your youth through music um it's you you get a lot of sports references in there too uh yeah anybody's looking at the video of this if you guys put it up over my i guess my right shoulder is a picture of Michael Jordan hitting the last shot of the 98 finals, you know, basically dusting Brian Russell. And uh, the best part about it is it's except for Jordan's in, in color and the rest of the photos in black and white. And so one thing us, us Bulls fans love to do is kind of look at the, the faces of the people in the crowd in Utah and just like the utter horror that they experience <laughs> between him releasing the ball and it dropping into the hoop because they all know what's coming. And there's, there's this one little kid who's like, yeah, in the background, he's obviously a Bulls fan, but <laughs> you know, awesome. there's where we we kind of uh, take for granted. I think I, so. I, I'm I'm a Cubs fan because I've been here for more than half my life, and mm-hmm. I'm also like a lifelong because I grew up in Philly, a lifelong Villanova basketball fan, and I've had a good run of like experience seeing my sports teams do well. And I think that's something <laughs> a lot of people really love. Like we sports could be not that important compared to a lot of stuff going on in the world, but it gives us an opportunity to be part of subculture and, you know, like a, sports subcultures are not any better or worse or less important than music subcultures or, I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons nerds or whatever. I think we all have our things that we drop into. And I, yeah, I mean, I can't talk about Chicago in the nineties and not mention Jordan. It's not like I have Darby go to a Bulls game because yeah. you couldn't get you, like the waiting list back then was literally 20 to 30,000 people. You would call be like, oh. Hey, let's take it. So we'll call this line, leave your name and number. And they would tell you the waiting list was like 27,000 people just wow. for like nosebleed tickets. And even for a year after Jordan was gone, it was, you know, it was impossible. But then, then, then like by 1999, they're calling us like, hey, just try to rally the troops. We need some fans <laughs> to show up at the game. And the Bulls mm-hmm. the organization were putting out these billboards like with Elton Brand, like through thick and thin, basically like guilt tripping you into not coming to see the Bulls. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's brilliant. Well, we've been through a lot of thin being – Seattle area fans. I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, in our lifetime, we've had one championship in our uh, two, I guess. Three. Uh, well, three. Oh, wait, oh, one storm. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> the Mariners yeah, suck. They always have. They always will. It's just one of those things. We have a chance uh, of the World Series this year. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. We're in the wild card running. Um, I also, I really like, do you have a tribe called Quest? Uh, is that a placard or something behind you? Okay, uh, it's like, well, I don't know what the term is. You know, yeah. you, have, you have a turntable, which I don't. The felt thing used oh, to the, be a turntable yeah, or something. The vinyl cover. Or, um, 
yeah, it, yeah, I have one of those, but it's Death Cab for Cutie, and that shows exactly who I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have a fairly vague recollection of anything and everything pop culture, which is weird because I'm the co-host of a pop culture podcast. We don't understand that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a joke, um, but Brandon, being such a music aficionado, knows a lot of these bands and stuff, so yeah. um, I still recognize some, for sure, but uh, overall... So good, Andrew, good, good so Andrew when, when you're home by yourself, Andrew, who do you play air guitar to? I really want to know. Mm. And don't this tell is interesting that. because I have a varied <laughs> and somewhat it's like varied, but also narrow music tastes. I am a big fan of the classic rock. Um, I think that's just because my dad listened to a lot of it growing up and I, I wasn't always into like the uh, the current music. Um, <laughs> Anything I played in my car. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is Brandon always had these playlists and I think the Smashing Pumpkins always played first. And at the time I was like, oh gosh, we're going through Brandon's playlist again. But now it's kind of <laughs> nostalgic when I hear those songs. Um, let's see bands. I used to listen to or still do Ooh, Jimmy world, which is listed here as one of the bands you interviewed. We saw them live in Seattle. That was pretty good. Yeah, one of our um, first concerts. Really big fan of bad religion. All right. They're coming to the riot fest. I'm going to see them in two weeks. And my, they're I mean, so I'm good. To see, like I want to see seven seconds and a bunch of other bands, but I've never seen bad religion there. You know, they're, they're tight. So I, I appreciate the, uh, th- their lyrics are, are, are well written and, and, uh, it's just, it's a great band. I love them a lot. So I just missed them in co- in concert. The worst thing is when you find out that they were in town three days ago and you had no idea any mm. band that you would want to see. It's like, ah, and I live in a town where pe- they don't come here much, Same. <laughs> unfortunately. Same. So, uh, yeah. But uh, it was like the uh, shin, the shins just played Big Sur, and I'm like an hour and a half away from that. And I learned about it like two days after, and I was so devastated because uh, yeah. Henry, Henry Miller Library is a really cool venue to watch the the Northwest uh, 2000, like late 90s, 2000 bands from. I guess, I guess it is a dynamic of age. So I've got a friend that I've, I've I went to see Built to Spill with. Um, so my son, about I guess it must have been. Two weeks ago, yeah, maybe it was two weeks ago. He's like, Dad, I'm going to build a spill show with my friend and his dad. I was like, Oh, cool, awesome. Like, I don't really like the band, but I remember when my friend Tim, he's like, Do you want to go? I'm like, Yeah, sure. Like, I don't really like them, but because <laughs> um, I actually saw them at Lounge X in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I go to meet him there. And if I want to say they had two shows, like Tim always does this, like, we're going to see the replacements together. And he was there last night too. And I'm like, Okay, where are you? I'm up front. So I'm like, okay, clock, or are you at 11 o'clock? You at one? Because that actually works at concert, busy concerts. Mm. So I, I, I got like four beers in my hand. I'm going to find him. And I get up there. He's like, yeah, I was here last night. And I was like, oh, you need to see him again? Like, they're that good? Fine, whatever. But uh, I, so two weeks ago, I, I, I literally dropping off my, my kid at his friend's house because they're going to go down to Salia Hall. And I was like, did you go, are you going to build a spill? Or maybe it was the next day. I was like, did you go to build a spill last night? He's like, no, I didn't even know they were in town. I'm like, really? You're kind of <laughs> off your game, Tim, you know, because I would have thought you would have been, you know, this is a guy who will go to Lounge Acts. Lounge Act, or no, sorry, not Lounge Act. Empty Bottle is this venue in Chicago where sometimes they have these shows where you like you show up and if you're one of the first 200 people in line, you get to go to the show. So he calls me one time several years ago. He's like, do you want to go see Japan Droid tonight? Well, like, yeah, sure, I guess. And he's like, I'm like, get me an extra ticket. And he's like, well, no, I'm in line now. And I said, well, I, I guess I'm not going to be able to make it in then unless you know, want, me to, want me to cut or we pay everybody behind you in line to let me in. Because, you know, so um, there would be yeah, riots. like my super uber hip friends who are always like on the beat of what's coming next. 
are starting to lose their game. And I guess well, that means we're all getting old now. So. <laughs> There's no shame in that. We all have shit to do. It's just, you can only keep up with so much. Yeah. Uh, so, so before we get to the book, uh, where can, where can people find you? Where can people find the book? We'll cover this again, but yeah. Uh, my website is andyfry.com, fry with an E. Um, it, there's actually right on the front page, it will take you to 90daysin90s.com, which is where you can buy the book, uh, you know, but 90s in the 90s.com. Um, <laughs> so if you want like a signed copy and some swag, do it that way. Uh, if you are, you know, connected at the hip to Amazon, you can obviously buy it at amazon.com and pretty much anywhere you, you want to get books, um, you know, pretty much around the world. If you're outside the U.S., I think you have to get it from Amazon because it would cost me like 40 bucks to ship it to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not economical. No, mm. no, that's, that's not going to work. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I, I wanted to touch on, you, you touched on it a little bit already, um, setting the book in Chicago because that's where you spent the nineties. Um, but it, what what was it like putting yourself in that mind space of going back to uh, 1996 Chicago? Um, like you, you have a deep knowledge of the venues, which is really cool. Um, and it kind of, it really shows as the, it, it adds an extra flavor to, to the, the narrative. Um, and uh, what can you tell us just like, what was it mapping? What was it like trying to like, because I go home to Seattle all the time and I'm like, oh, I remember this over here being different. And and uh, I remember when that that first Albertsons went in right there. But it's <laughs> it's like, what, what what was it like going back three decades at this point to, yeah. to 96? Well, I started I started writing this about five years ago. So it was five years ago, June 1st. I got an idea over Easter and I thought, well, this is really cool. And I think what some writers do is we set ideas aside and if we care about it like two three weeks later just the same and uh you know the bar napkin wasn't thrown away then then we jump back into it give it a try so i i think like i just thought about it maybe i maybe i have a different point of view about time travel like i always think about like, what would i want to experience like that sandwich shop that i used to love it shut down or that place you know with the two dollar guinness that also served tacos like i would want to go there there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the 90s I remember I was visiting a friend in Minneapolis. He took me to this bar called Chang O'Malley's, which was, uh, the story was, I think it was um, a guy who was married to, he's an Irish guy who married to a, a woman whose last name is Chang. And they would serve like, it was like an Irish pub that served Chinese food. I don't know if it's all around. It's like that stuff or like Sunday Malone's in Cincinnati, where you could go see a band and wash your clothes. Like that was rife. And I thought about those kind of things, not like, well, if I go back to time, back through time, would, you, would, I, would I save the world? Would I prevent 9-11? Would I prevent, you know, the SNL scandal or whatever to mm -hmm. save the economy? Like, I, I never really thought in those broad brushes, like, oh, I need to uh, make, you know, I need to make sure that Princess Diana doesn't get in that car that night. You know, I just wanted to go experience things. So it wasn't really that hard for me to think about. And I'm not like, I'm happy with where I am in life. I'm not a person who think, oh, I wish I could go back to high school and wish I could go back to the good old times. Like, but I put just the same if you could jump back in time, you'd probably, I would just want to want to hang out for a week and just see, <laughs> I'd probably spend a day or two doing nothing, walking around to see what was still there. And then I would get up the nerve to like go to a concert, go to my favorite bar and walk in. And um, I wanted it also to be independent of dropping in on, you know, my grandfather or something like that. But there's those dynamics I think happen in time travel literature. I really just wanted to go and kind of experience the things. And I thought about shows, concerts that I've been to shows I've been to, where they were, what it was like, what it smelled like, what I drank, you know, I probably 
was rubbing two nickels together and could only afford like, you know, the, the 25 cent Huber, Huber beers that they used to have on certain nights at the empty bottle. Um, I'm not sure what the, the cheapest brew they have there now, but like you could subsist on, you know, quarter beers at certain places to see a DJ or a band that you wanted to witness. And, you know, that was kind of a lifestyle. So I wanted to jump back into that. It wasn't really that hard to think that way. Maybe it's, I haven't grown up and I want to just kind of do that again, but yeah, it was easier than I thought. And then, then the difficult part about writing a, a, a novel is, well, how do I come up with 70,000 to 100,000 words to make something of this? And then what do I do with these characters um, that I want to create? And that that kind of all evolves if you stick with it. And I got to a point where I created major characters and minor characters, and they had their quirks and the music that they liked and, you know, the bands, the terrible bands, maybe that they would be embarrassed to tell you that they liked. And I just kind of wanted to hang out with them for a while. And that's really what it became about. I just followed that that momentum and revised you know a billion times and hired an editor and just kind of came to fruition when it was you know ready to be put out what well, was it i mean because you're writing a period piece it's funny that the yeah. 90s you could say that it must have been difficult sometimes you're like you're about to write that they pulled out their cell phone and texted somebody and you're like oh oh hold on <laughs> they walked yeah. to the phone booth and uh picked up the phone book and dialed i i just imagine that that at some time probably some caused some time, issues yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, if you read, it uh, sounds like Brandon spun through the book, there's a couple of times where Darby makes these anachronisms where she'll mention something that hasn't happened right. yet. I think in the, in, one, in the first chapter, one of the first chapters where she ends up at Lounge Action, she's talking to um, this girl named Rachel that she is smitten with. And Rachel is kind of like, imagine Jessica Chastain in a, a, a leather jacket. Like she's, uh, she's like <laughs> a pretty redhead who's a metalhead and she's not ashamed of it. And Darby's kind of become a music snob again. So then she mentioned something like Darby's from New Jersey originally, even though she went to college and stayed in Chicago. And she mentioned she's from New Jersey and Rachel's kind of picking on her. And it's like, oh, you like Bon Jovi. And she's like, oh, I can't believe that. that I hate Bon Jovi. I can't believe that they made it to the Rock and Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. But given this is back in 96, yeah, they're not in the Rock and Hall yeah. of Fame. I think that happened in like 2014, which I, I still don't know how that happened. But you know, she's mentions that and Rachel's like, what are you, t- what are you talking about? They're not in the rock and roll flame. And she has to kind of stop herself a couple of times mentioning these things that happened in the later nineties or in the two thousands or whatever. That's funny. So, uh, wanted to play with that. I took improv comedy for many years and performed at second city a little bit. And that's oh, very that's Chicago. Cool. And mm-hmm. one thing that you learn in comedy is like, do something three times. It's, it's funny. The thing about the Seinfeld episode you know, the junior mints or the Snickers bar comes up three times, maybe four. Comedy um, comes in I don't threes. know why that works. It just works. So I, I played with that, with the technology and other things. That's I, funny. That I, actually I, parallels. I just watched, uh, I'm, I'm late to the party on a lot of movies. I just watched uh, that movie yesterday. I, I, do oh, you yeah. familiar? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And there was a similar thing where he kept referencing things that like, it didn't exist. And people were, uh, nice. there you go. People were confused. I, I love that. That was kind of one of my favorite parts of that movie. So, um, when I do yeah, get around to reading the book, sorry, uh, <laughs> I will look for that. Yesterday, this like I, one thing I did do is like I kind of didn't allow myself to watch certain movies. I remember I was at a writing conference probably back in 2019, and, and just met somebody who was asking me what, what my book was about, and they're like, "Oh, it's like that Woody Allen movie, Midnight in Paris." And I think, well, kind of. I hadn't seen that since yeah. it came out, and I sort of barred myself from seeing Hot Tub Time Machine and. When yesterday came out, I was a little bit tempted. I wanted to finish up, but I, I mean, there will be overlaps because it's a time travel story. There's going to be common themes. You know, you can't really get away from that. Yeah. And just the same. And yesterday, I can't remember the, the character's name, but he doesn't feel it's upon himself to 
save the world. He kind of falls into this thing being a diehard Beatles fan. He just he's not going to go an hour without mentioning the Beatles. And then he's basically, you know, is, is their story in this time time space continuum where they don't exist and nobody uh, has heard of them. But I, I did see that movie after I completed probably the, like the eighth draft. And um, it, it, uh, there's a scene where Darby hears about the gray line because she wants to see, is this for real? Or like, I'm just, I'm, I'm up late. I don't have anything to do. I'm going to jump on the internet. And I was kind of thinking like, how do you do that in a book? Like, mm. is it boring for you and me to read about someone searching on the internet? And then when <laughs> I saw um, yesterday, I think the first thing that the character does when he realizes people don't know who the Beatles are is he goes to the internet and searches it and Wikipedia shows like a beetle. Like a <laughs> yeah. So I kind of validated what I was doing. I, I didn't, needed to kind of make that chapter kind of short and sweet and to the point. But uh, that's, I think, something that any of us would do if we found out tomorrow that, you know, I don't know if I found out I'm living in, uh, I don't know, this part of Northern Illinois and it's not called Chicago and nobody knows what I'm talking about. Whether it's <laughs> Chicago. Like I would Google Chicago and see if it came up on the internet to see if I'm crazy or not. That's the way we validate facts these days. So Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a good point. You also, um, I think there's a scene on the bus with the kids, uh, the preppy girl with the cell phone versus the kind of goth girls on the bus, uh, that kind of looks into the, how back then it's a commentary on how back then we didn't need, have these devices yeah. that can get a calling card. Up. You could use at the phone booth, you know? Yeah. Um, that actually did happen. I just told me to interject, but I, I had, but one of my roommate actually was like, we were, I think we both had two jobs in 1996 or 97. And like, so we, and we still couldn't afford cell phones because it wasn't something everybody had. Mm. But he, he tells me the story, like, or this, like, there's like a punk chick and two and two goth girls. And they're kind of like, having this sort of drama as to whether or not it's punk or not punk to have a cell phone. Like, <laughs> it wouldn't even occur to you now. You would never see like, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I heard about the band Fugazi that Ian Mackay doesn't have a cell phone. Cause he's just like, you know, he's straight edge, vegan purist. Doesn't eat, you know, doesn't, isn't into marketing his band and D- doesn't need those way, EAM yeah. waves near him. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that someone would be like, well, I don't own a cell phone cause it's not punk and I'm a punk, but that was actually a thing in the nineties. Like it was, it was a big moral dilemma. I wanted to kind of play with that both for, because it, it, it kind of happened to a friend of mine, but then also it's, it's relevant and also ridiculous that we've had, you know, it's kind of like making fun of Gen X. Like we were overly, hung up on authenticity mm. you know for much as we want to bag millennials or gen z about their taste in music or what their thing is or i i often make fun of millennials for being like hey is you want to go out and get a beer is that on fleek like i'll, I'll kind of <laughs> joke about the some of the the hashtags and stuff it's pretty but, bad you know, i mean we're I, I i think we're getting close to geriatric millennial i'm not quite yeah. sure i think we're middle-aged millennials, but no, we're, it's pretty bad. Gen X, so Gen X, we were overly uh, consumed with authenticity about like, Oh, is this pencil like authentic wood or is it, you know, mm. fake? Like, is, is it vintage enough for me to use? Like, well, I'll make fun of Gen Xers too. But anyway, I feel like yeah, millennials are like that, but with mustaches that are styled. It's that <laughs> and uh, pronouncing things correctly in, in, in acronyms uh, is an acronym. Do you read it as the word or do you pronounce each letter? Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've Never noticed that's that been, one. yeah. Uh, so you said you've been writing the book for about five years, but the present story is, or the, the portion of the story that's set in the present is post COVID. Um, yeah. Do you, can you talk a little bit about like how, uh, how is it writing a book that's happened after this 
this traumatic thing that we've all been through for the last two years. Yeah, two well, I started so. writing this thing in, in <clears throat> June of 2017, and then we all went through it. And um, I mean, what, probably like 2019 and 2020, when I thought this book was done and ready to be published, it wasn't really ready. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked on it a lot more, and it just ended up being better, I think. And I was more happy with the end of it. But I, I, I did, it kind of worked out that, you know, it got published in 2022, kind of as we're emerging from COVID. I was hoping that we weren't going to go back into COVID with another variant, but I wanted to kind of deal with that because, you know, it's, so I'm 50. One of the things I'm I'm doing, like I've got next weekend, I'm going to see Echo and the Body Men. Nice. Uh, week after that, I'm going to see uh, Mama, which is a band from California. It's, it's a, um, they're probably like 20 years old. They're pretty young. They sound like Veruca Salt and Local okay. H to both great Chicago bands. So when I found out they're playing Sleeping Village for like 13 bucks, I'm like, I'm dude, I'm going. I think I bought my tickets in like April. It's been a while. I'm going to see L7 for the third time. So nice. that's what, you know, Gen Xers who like my kid's old enough to stay home and he doesn't need a babysitter. We have a little bit of money and enough to buy, you know, concert tickets. That's like what we're doing. So if I'm talking about the authentic audience that Darby is part of, mm-hmm. that's what would we, we would be doing. But I also have friends who have not been to a restaurant in two and a half years and just like, I want, I want to say, let's, let's go out. Let's get a bite. No, I don't do restaurants yet because of COVID mm-hmm. or you know, they, they might sit outside. So there's some of that. And it wasn't that difficult to navigate. I probably changed that first chapter a couple of times just based on where we were, but I wanted to, I guess, ideally, I didn't even know that this was happening as a wish listing. I kind of want to be like, okay, we're back again, mm-hmm. trying to experience life. What is that like? And there's maybe a parallel to Darby going back to the, the nineties to experience what that was about. Just take it all in both in the present and the past. So there's a little bit of symmetry that just kind of worked out there, but I didn't really belabor too much. Like I, I wanted to like, do, do, do people she knows, like, you don't really know why Mart, Martin, uncle Martin, her who on the record store died over, other than that. He was pretty old, That's a, good know, point. a senior citizen of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of played with the idea, like, did he die of COVID suddenly? Or like, I didn't really want to, I didn't want to, my, I think my editor does work was just like, well, that could be a big risk, or maybe you don't have to make that decision, just like you're not making the decisions that Darby has to save the world just because she's going back into time. So, you know, I, I did pretty well in the pandemic, um, wrote a lot, listened to a lot of music. I mean, I didn't get sick. Uh, I'm thankful for that. I kind of, I remember my my, my 40th birthday. No, sorry, no, what's my 40th birthday? No, my, um, anyway, I had a, yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting what age I am. I had a birthday. <laughs> I guess it was just like my birthday in April 2020 and friends were like, are you okay? Like you can't come out and celebrate your birthday. And I just would say like, I'm happy that I'm not waking up with a, a splitting headache and inability to breathe this morning. So I just took it all in as an opportunity to kind of, you know, as Gwyneth Paltrow would say during the pandemic, like learn a language or write a novel or, I don't know, invent some, some strange, uh, you know, home remedy to sell. To learn a TikTok dance. People. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't so. To answer your question on COVID, I kind of used it a little bit. I didn't ignore it because you couldn't couldn't ignore it. You know, if you're writing a book that took place in the fall of 20, 2001, you wouldn't ignore that 9 11 happened. Mm-hmm. I think about, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I watched every episode of Mad Men. I'm a huge soccer fan. And I remember when Lane, the English character, mentions in the meeting, like the Monday morning meeting, like, hey, you know, not sure if you're aware, England won the World Cup. So I know this is taking place in 1966. They didn't ignore that. So I think sometimes that's you acknowledge things, you don't ignore it. You don't necessarily have to master the world events in your novel, but you, you know, you, you, unless you're in an alternative reality, like a Neil Gaiman novel, 
um, or maybe the movie yesterday, you, you have to kind of acknowledge what's going on around you and not ignore it. And that's, that's all you have to do. I think. And meanwhile, in 1996, everyone has COVID because she accidentally brought, no, I'm just kidding. That would be a, a terrible, <laughs> it's like, terrible I didn't even think about that. No. <laughs> she wore a mask on the gray line. It's fine. Well, I mean, that's the great thing about tra- time travel stories is that as long as it's working within your set rules, uh, you could leave other stuff ambiguous. Like how did she, how did she not spread COVID to everyone? Or, or how did she uh, pay for things? That was always my question. It's like, is her bank card still working? No, it's well, uh, she, uh, I, I don't want to you buy cheap beer. Yeah. yeah. She found it. I thank you for out. addressing that because I feel like yeah. a lot of people don't address that kind of thing. I, whereas I, I i stayed up and finished it last night so oh yeah so there, there was a scene where i removed it because the editor was like yeah i know that you because i was in the financial services world for a while and i have a like a whole sub part where the i don't know it was like the 600 she puts in her pocket is now i actually use the inflation cal- calculator <laughs> it was like 412 like, dude what the fuck <laughs> But it was just a little bit too like, okay, this is great that you're doing this, is what Grace, my editor, said. But she's like, it's great, but you need to stick to the plot. You got to keep the plot going. So it's great that mm-hmm. you think this is cool and this is important to the the time travel. Maybe in the movie version that would happen. But right. if you're doing a whole like three pages about currency exchanges <laughs> and negative inflation working from 2022 to 1996, you're, you're going to lose some people or... You know, at the time I was querying it to agents and, and she's like, you're definitely going to lose them. So like, unless you feel like you really need this, pull it out. And I did, but it was like, there's a lot of exercises like that, that, that helped me craft the book that I just, I ended up taking that part out. But yeah, I did. I did think about those things, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask one, one big question, one more question before we hit break. Um, that's related to time travel and writing about time travel is that um, you can, you can structure your book differently than you would a, a single narrative that goes forward in time. Um, uh, you, you have like a midway through like a, a, I think you called it a prequel to the book in the middle of the book, which I thought was very, very yeah. cool. Um, but you kind of get some backstory filled in uh, about Darby before this era of her life that she goes back to. And then within that, you do a flashback to even before that. And I, I just, um, what, how did you find it more freeing or kind of, uh, kind of more tedious that you had a malleable um, timeline to play with when you were writing Darby's story? Yeah, I think I wanted originally, you know, a couple drafts in I had that her I had her going back to like her her 90s kind of earlier in the 90s episode where she's hanging out with her friends in Europe. And there's just that was kind of a 90s thing too, a lot of funny scenes. But I guess it wasn't really I, I don't like to use the word struggle because I didn't feel like it was a struggle, but it was work to kind of connect that. So one question that maybe popped up is Darby goes back in time from 2022 to 1996. Some things don't go away in the beginning. But most of it does. And at some point she's, you know, she's got her old job back that she loved as a music writer. She's dating this, you know, this bombshell, Rachel, uh, who likes music and you know, hang out with her friends again. And then she she has to address the question, like, why did I ever leave this? And she knows that she left because before she met Rachel and before all this great stuff happened, she left because uh, she broke up with somebody. Her job wasn't going anywhere you know, her best friend absconded in Europe, which is sort of why you have this prequel. But you get the reasons for you know, what happened before all this and what made her just make the split decision to move to New York if all this stuff was great? There's got to be, you can't blag your way through that. So 
you get to experience her, um, you know, in like, you know, 1994 and sometimes before this, which is why I call it a prequel. And, uh, you know, she does a lot of things that 20 somethings in there, you know, people in their 20 something in a big city would do. And, you know, it's, it's, you get to again, tag along with her, but also see some of the life episodes that maybe precipitated decisions that maybe were or were not the right decision that made her do what she did before she, you know, because I think it is relevant. Like if you go back in time and everything's perfect, well, is it perfect? And let's talk about that. Uh, it can't just be, she goes back in time and everything's honky dory and she lives happily ever after that. You know, she has to kind of get real with the fact that she made some mistakes and that she also did have a reason to leave. That's why she left to go to New York to try to be this wall street hotshot for a while and, you know, get a real job and get a real career when she didn't think the music writing thing was going the way it should have or the way she wanted it to. And you also get some insight on, on the characters and sort of, you know, why they are the way they are. And so I felt like originally it was just, here's some cool stuff that happened, you know, back before Luke Skywalker became a Jedi kind of a kind of approach, but also I wanted to, it to be some rationale and really some validating of, or ex, maybe not validating, explaining why she did some of the things that she did that you were presented with on the on page of one of the novel. So um, I felt I, like it was it was a, a good thing for me to do, and I it just sort of tied everything together. I think it it really worked well for for the story. Um, just kind of because in the beginning uh, you're you're wondering, oh, I mean. Yeah, I, I guess it, if I went back to this point in time, there would have to be something that there would be a reason why she picked that date. And uh, I mean, relative to your time travel rules and mechanics. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely I, I liked how it, it unwrapped more about her and her all of the people that surrounded her. Um, very, very, very well done. Um, Andrew, Thanks. you want to take us to... Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's go to Brandon for the Namely 90s Minute. Welcome back to our mid-episode break, Namely 90s Minute. Every week we look back at a culturally relevant show, movie, or piece of pop culture that probably helps stoke the algorithm. This week, in honor of 90 days in the 90s, we're looking back at a movie that involves both time travel and music. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a 1991 sequel to the cult classic time travel adventure Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It stars Neo from The Matrix as Ted, Marco from The Lost Boys as Bill, and the legendary comedian Cardinal Glick from Dogma as Rufus. It also features Haywood from The Shawshank Redemption as Death. The story starts in the far future where Bill and Ted's band, The Wild Stallions, have helped create a utopian society, but a former gym teacher turned terrorist named Chuck Dinomos steals a time-traveling phone booth and sends evil Bill and Ted robots back in time to ruin their life and stop the pivotal moment in history when they won the San Dimas Battle of the Bands. Rufus tries to stop it from happening, but gets lost in the circuits of time. In the present, Bill and Ted audition for the Battle of the Bands with their girlfriends. Somehow, Bill and Ted are still not good enough at playing music, yet they're destined to win, but they make it in the show anyway. After a party, Bill and Ted propose to their girlfriends right as the evil robots arrive from the future. The robots lure them out to Vasquez Rocks and throw the original pair over a cliff, killing them and proceed to ruin their lives. In the afterlife, Bill and Ted meet Death and give him a wedgie to escape, they call it a Melvin. Then they try to contact their friends via possession and eventually try speaking via seance, but it results in them being sent to hell where they meet Satan, who tortures them. Bill and Ted decide to face Death and play a game for their souls, and much to Death's dismay, they pick modern games like Battleship, Clue, and Twister and beat him easily, leaving him at their command. Bill and Ted look to the smartest person in the universe to help build robots to beat their evil robot duplicates, so they 
they enlist the help of God, who sends them to an alien duo named Station that helps them while they get resurrected on Earth. At the Battle of the Bands, the good robots beat the bad robots, but then Denomalos shows up in a time booth and attempts to kill Bill and Ted again. Bill and Ted then reason they can go back in time after this encounter to set things up to capture Denomalos here in the present, but he then plans on doing the same to stop them, so then they say only the winner of the Battle of the Bands can use the time booth. So instead, Denomalos gets Melvin by the death and is arrested. Rufus then reveals that he was the woman event organizer of the Battle of the Bands all along, but as Bill and Ted are about to play, they realize they still suck, so they use the time booth to do 16 months of guitar training and a two-week honeymoon. And because of time travel, they then take the stage and play the most epic concert in history, which unites the world and oh my god, how did all of this fit into a 93-minute movie that people actually watched? And that's, that's Bill and Ted's bogus journey in a namely 90s minute, more or less. And now back to the show. All right. Um, we're here with Andy Fry, and um, I wanted to take a quick break uh, from talking about 90 Days in the 90s um, to do a quick game that I like to call 1996. Do you remember it better than a seven year old? Because <laughs> um, Andrew would have been seven Seven-ish, or eight ish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I have 10 questions. They're multiple choice. Um, we're going to put Andy up against Andrew. Oh, no. Um, and <laughs> as regular listeners uh, know, Andrew's definitely going to lose this one. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I've picked some random stuff that happened in 1996. And um, although if Andrew had actually paid attention to our last 120 episodes he would be able to, Let's just to say, at least tie you on i'll this. do better today than i would have before we started the podcast but i'm still not going to do well but we'll, yeah. we'll give it a shot uh so we're gonna start with um music since uh that's a, a big part of the book um which song spent longer at number one on the billboard hot 100 in 1996 in 1996 was it one Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men, or The Macarena Bayside Boys Mix by Los Del Rio. And uh, I guess we'll go with Andrew first because okay. I have a feeling Andy knows Andy. I feel I I want to say I want to say the Macarena. I feel like that thing was on the charts okay. for an eternity. Andrew's locking in the Macarena, and Andy. You know it's it's weird because I remember watching and I, I think I might have mentioned this in the book. I mentioned uh, the the convent the presidential conventions i actually didn't mention them. i remember watching the republican conventions republican convention I, i'm having flashbacks there because i was stoned out of my gourd and we're watching like, these uptight people from like you know kansas and mississippi these you know doing the macarena on thursday night on the republican convention on national tv i'm like dude whoa this is whack man but it's funny um but i feel like the i feel like the, the macarena had a, kind of a, a gradual late swell mm-hmm. that Took a while. So I'm going to go with the Mariah Carey tune just because I think I'm, I'm surprised I turn on. I like to watch MTV Classic a lot and I watch the 90s Nation and I'm surprised how much Mariah Carey is on there. Oh, just, again, mm-hmm. really? Like she was just on 20 minutes ago. And I, so <laughs> that's what kind of pushed me towards saying Mariah Carey and boys, the men who are freaking huge. Oh, yeah. Fine. So. Uh, all right. So. Uh, for this one, Andrew is actually correct. In Whoa. 1996, uh, the Macarena held 14 weeks at number one, whereas One Sweet Day was 11 weeks. But 
Andy would have been right for total time at the number one because they were five weeks in 1995 leading uh, into 96, uh, where they were also, or one sweet day was also at number one. So <laughs> sorry for, s- sorry for being tricky. Well, at least sorry he's not asking tricky. you which decade various McDonald's were built in, <laughs> which is one of the games I had to play with Brandon. It was yeah. not fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Um, all right, so Andrew's up by one. This is the only lead that he will have in this game. <laughs> um, next up, uh, what I, I like video games. Video games were a big part of my 90s experience. And in 1996, I was curious, what was the best-selling video game console of 1996 worldwide? Was it the Nintendo 64, uh, the Nintendo Game Boy, the Sony PlayStation, or the Sega Genesis. Um, so the Dreamcast wasn't around then. Okay. Dreamcast came out in '98, I believe. Uh, Nintendo 64 released this year in '96 in, in Japan, and later in the year in the U.S. Game Boy had been around the whole time. PlayStation was released in '95, I believe, and Genesis was '94. Three Uh Andy, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm going to say uh, just that there's a commonality between the Genesis and Phil Collins. It can't be that. Um, <laughs> although Phil Collins had some not, number one. I love Phil Collins. Six, so I don't know. Um, I don't remember the, the, the Genesis, uh, but I feel like I remember there's a certain period of time where my younger brother was maybe a preteen at the time wanted the Game Boy. So I'm going to say I don't remember when the Game Boy was released, but I'm going to say that was its big first big year when it was a must have uh, Christmas present. So I'm going to say Game Boy. Okay. I'm I'm kind of vacillating between the Nintendo 64 and Sony PlayStation. I mean, it wasn't it was PlayStation or Sony's first real foray into the market, which could have caused a lot of buzz and interest. But Nintendo was the more recognized name. Um, I'm going to go with PlayStation. Oh, okay. Um, Answers locked in. Andrew, I don't know how you're doing so well. This (laughs) has never happened before. Uh, The Sony PlayStation (laughs) sold 6.6 million units. Uh, The Game Boy sold 4 million, and the Genesis sold 4 million, and the 64 sold 2.8 million. Oh, Um, only? Wow, I'm surprised by that. Well, because it didn't release. It released in Japan, and then, yeah, it was kind of sold out. Um, So, Andrew with two points, Andy uh, skunking right now, but um, I have one that neither of you will get. (laughs) I have a one in in four chance of getting the next one. You have a one in four chance in this one. (laughs) I am also kind of a comic book nerd. No. Um, And uh, I constantly try to insert some comic book uh, classics into our 90s uh, podcast. Um, What famous 90s comic book event slash story started in 1996? Uh, Was it Batman the Long Halloween, which was uh, a mysterious killer named Holiday who keeps murdering people on holidays? And it was a year long story that... It's actually really, really good. Um, was it the death of Superman? That iconic shot of 
Doomsday and Superman killed each other and his, his torn cape um, on the cover. Was it the Spider-Man clone saga where uh, it's a mess, but people loved it. Uh, <laughs> Peter, Peter Parker was apparently cloned in the seventies and then he thought his clone died, but he was actually, he was the clone, but he actually wasn't because it was a Didn't we not really even know about Goblin. DNA in the seventies? I'm just going to point that yeah. out. But. Is that how we ended up with Tony McGuire playing? Spider-Man because they, they the clones are so terrible they had to find him. Yes, pretty much, and and then he did the little emo dance in number three and just uh, they had barely discovered DNA. I'm still curious how the cloning is happening. And then, uh, <laughs> well, I think it was just like a, they xeroxed him. Okay, in, yeah, in, fair in, enough. In, yeah. In, the, in the comics, uh, and then finally, number is Batman gets his back broken in the Nightfall arc that another famous Bane breaking Batman's back over Bane his knee. Wow. Uh, so we have the long Halloween, uh, death of Superman, Spider-Man clone saga or, or nightfall. Uh, Andrew, you're up first. Uh, again. I'll go Spider-Man. I really have no earthly idea. I know this one was just for me. <laughs> uh, Andy, do you have a guess? I was going to say the clone saga because they're Dolly, the, the clone. Oh, the sheep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I want to say that was probably 95. So I'm going to say uh, the, the Nightfall Batman one because I don't know Jack about comics. <laughs> okay. Same. Um, it was actually Batman the Long Halloween. Uh, so uh, sorry to both of you, but um, I just I just wanted to say all those things and get it into our podcast because I never all get right. the chance. Uh, all right. 1996 is a marvelous year for Marvel actresses. Which one was not born in 1996? Ooh. We have Zendaya, uh, who played MJ in the Spider-Man th- uh, number three. Andrew likes to number the Spider-Man actors uh, by their films. Uh, the Spider-Man number three films. Uh, we have Florence Pugh, who played Yelena Belova, the younger sister of Black Widow. Uh, Haley Steinfeld, who plays Kate Bishop, the new Hawkeye from the Hawkeye Disney Plus series. Or Letitia Wright, she plays Shuri, uh, the uh, younger sister of the Black Panther. Um, so which one of those actresses was not born in 1996? Uh, I'll say Letitia Wright because I don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't know why, but I, have the, I just have this general sense that it's Haley Steinfeld. Okay. Um, Andrew went with Haley Steinfeld and you went with Letitia, right? Andy is correct. Ah. Bringing his point total to one. Andrew somehow still has <laughs> two points. Um, uh, moving on. What was the highest grossing film of 1996? Was it Twister? Was it Mission Impossible? Was it Independence Day? Or was it the sports classic Space Jam? Andrew, I think you go first. Oh, I really shouldn't get this wrong. Um, uh, that they're all really close together. I, I'm going to go with Independence Day. Okay. Uh, Andrew has Independence Day. Oh, how about you, Andy? Yeah, I'm going to go with the uh, steaming pile of horse dung that was, uh, you know, Bill Pullman's great acting relation. <laughs> ID4, ID4, they branded it, which kind of doesn't really make sense. They call it ID4. It's kind of redundant. No. Yeah, I, 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 I've always wondered about that. Uh, you yeah, were both Twister correct. Huge, I mean, Twister was a huge success. I was surprised by that, too, because it's just like, oh, there's another tornado. We're going to call yeah. Twister. We'll chase it and uh, first Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, yeah, dude. Yeah, that character was too much, but that is the first movie that was released on DVD. We uh, we like oh, wow. actually oh, just wow. watched it recently. For the first, I'm a, I'm a big 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 Michael Crichton fan, 
And so okay. I'm mm. catching up on some of the stuff that's sort of, you know, he wrote the screenplay, but uh, I do think the acting is a little over the top. I had it on VHS. Uh, um, and I just saw we were, we started watching sleepless in Seattle last night where Bill Pullman <laughs> is the most unlikable character <laughs> ever. Sounds about right. He was on SNL. I said the one time he was on SNL, probably in 96, I I'm pretty sure he was drunk. And I, I remember years ago hearing, uh, Sean Penn being interviewed by Terry gross on NPR and he's drunk. And he's just like, yeah, I'm drunk and alcohol's helped me be who I am like basically doing, Sean Penn, competent, drunk, believable, and Bill Pullman. You're like, Man, really? You had to be drunk for this. And it was it was more boring. As I thought, Bill Pullman was yeah. dead. <laughs> turns out, yeah, okay. turns out his character died in the Equalizer too, but he's actually alive and well. Who well, knew? I see. That's the same thing. Well, they Bill thought Paxton, about Bill Pullman. It, it, I get him confused sometimes too. Yeah, he's <laughs> Pullman's like David Caruso without the red hair. They're they're <laughs> life support. Anyway, Independence Day is what I'm, what I'm going to say. I think uh, we're both probably, you, you're we're both here. correct. Yeah, at, uh, the park. Uh, it was eight hundred and eight hundred seventeen thousand uh, grossed in the box office. Twister, I believe, was second with about half as much, uh, followed by Mission Impossible and Space Jam came in at number ten. Surprisingly, not surprisingly. <laughs> I remember one of the British magazines I used to pick up Melody Maker all the time and, and the, the face. And I remember they reviewed Mission Impossible as Mission Unwatchable. And I thought it was, it was Mission Impossible. Um, yeah. They had his uh, Independence Day, but who knows? That's right up Andrew's alley with the, the pun there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Next question. 1996 brought us the U.S. movie slash backdoor. Oh, another nerd thing. You guys are going to hate this one. Uh, U.S. Uh, movie yeah. slash backdoor pilot TV movie, excuse me, of a Doctor Who reboot on Fox that didn't happen. Uh, it featured Paul McGann as the doctor. What number incarnation of Doctor Who was he? Was he number seven, number eight, number nine or number five? I think, Andy, you have honors. Well, definitely not five because there were half a dozen before uh, I got out of high school. So I'm going to say halfway between eight or nine. I guess I'll just say eight. All right. And Andrew, uh, you, you you love the I'm British feeling sci-fi. seven. I, I don't know why. I'm just feeling seven. Okay. And with that, Andy evens up the score. Okay. It was the eighth Dr. Paul McGann uh, who reprised his role 20 ish years later in a five minute uh, episode before the 50th anniversary episode. Um, all right. So you're both tied at three. I actually watched a little bit of um, the uh, Chris Eccleston one, which must have been like nine or 10, but mm-hmm. mainly because 90s reference Billy Piper was his sidekick there. Oh, yeah. Billy Piper. Uh, all right. That was six questions in. We have four left. Andrew has plenty of time to lose this tie. Um, so not everything is happy in 1996. Uh, which power couple didn't get a But Oh, wait. I didn't set up this question well. Uh, there are a lot of divorces. Uh, which power couple didn't? didn't get a divorce in 1996 was it michael jackson and lisa marie presley was it prince charles and princess die was it uh, nelson and winnie mandela or was pa- was it pamela anderson and tommy lee which couple didn't get a divorce in 1996 andrew you are up mm. wow um this is going to have to be a total guess because I, I don't have a recollection of this. 
Uh, we'll go with Pam and Tommy. Okay, Andrew's locking in Pam and Tommy. How about you, Andy? I'm going to go with Winnie and Nelson because I think that I, I, one of my favorite movies is Invictus, uh, where um, is it Morgan Freeman plays uh, Mandela? That would make sense. Mm-hmm. And that, so that takes place during the Rugby World Cup of 1995. I think somebody, like one of the, there's a scene where one of the like Secret Service guys mention his wife and he, he gets sad and decides not to take his 5 a.m. morning walk. So I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know when technically the divorce was, but I think just going about that scene, I'll probably say it happened before 1996. All right. Um, great recollection, but they did finalize their divorce in 96. Uh, but Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee finalized theirs in 95. Ooh which we brought up in an episode like a month ago, Andrew. So I'm impressed that you kind of remember. Yeah, I didn't, I, yeah it was subconscious <laughs> of anything. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Andrew takes the lead again. They remarried or no? Were they remarried or just hanging out again together? I think, I think they were just hanging out again. They yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the 95 divorce was after she filed, um, the, the battery charges. Mm. Um, all right, coming back into Andy's wheelhouse now, we we have a section called Sports Go Sports, uh, but this one might be more Andrews. Who knows? Because uh, Andrews a hockey buff. He's a he's a he's an undercover hockey buff. Who won the Stanley Cup in 1996? Was it the Colorado Avalanche, the Florida Panthers, the Detroit Red Wings, or the New Jersey Devils? Uh, Andy, I think it's your flyer. So you said that the Devils, the the, the Avalanche, uh, the, the Red Wings, or who? Who else? Florida Panthers. If I remember right, because I'm a group of Flyers fan, I, I may be off in the air. I want to say that the Flyers got swept by the Detroit Red Wings, got their asses handed to them, and um, yeah, so I'm going to go with the, the Red Wings. Ooh. All right. Well, Colorado and New Jersey were, I believe, really good at this time. I think Colorado mm-hmm. won it in ninety. Five, did they? I'm gonna go with Colorado. All right, uh, Andrew, you are correct on this one. I, I I was looking; it's either 95 or 97 that the Flyers got swept by the Red Wings. Good, good memory um, there, though. Yeah, dude, I'm sorry to be like super nitpicky, um, but uh, yep. Andrew, you pull ahead to uh, five to three. Death, this is this is odd. I don't, this is uncharted territory. I I wasn't expecting him to 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 do this. Um, let's I just got my AARP card. Just so you know. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> fair enough. Uh, another we have another uh, sports go sports. Um, who won the nineteen ninety six NBA Finals? Uh, was it the Seattle SuperSonics or the Chicago Bulls? And I will give you a bonus point if you can tell me who the MVP was. Andrew, you're first. Wow, this is going to be embarrassing. Uh, because it was the one that we should have watched and no uh, i don't uh i i'm not a foot, uh, football basketball fan um <laughs> well i uh i have to say chicago i mean okay and do okay do you have a guess for the mvp uh michael jordan i guess i don't know all right uh and andy so the, the Jordan's Bulls, who won 91, 92, 93, 96, 97, 98, won the 1996 finals on Father's Day. And uh, I guess I would have to say that Jordan was the MVP because I can't think of anybody else who 
Someone what usurps him on that. To- that <laughs> yeah. That is correct. Uh, can any of you, can either of you tell me, a- Andrew, you first for another bonus point. Was, uh, uh, wh- how many times was this that Jordan won MVP in the NBA finals? At this time, uh, it sounds like four because he just explained all the times that he won. I was trying to get Andy an extra point here. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Did the, uh, did the Supersonics ever win after the 70s? I don't think that they did. I don't know. That was like Seattle championship. This doesn't compute. Uh, all right. Um, just for the stakes, we'll make this last one worth two. Uh, the the one after the Super Bowl, uh, which is a Friends episode that aired after the Super Bowl in 1996, uh, is an episode where Ross's pet monkey uh, is shooting com- a commercial in New York, and uh, they try to see them. There's a bunch of guest stars in this episode. Um, which star did not appear in this episode? Was it Brooke Shields, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, or Jean-Claude Van Damme? Uh, One did or did not? Did not appear in this episode. Hmm. Um, Brooke Shields, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, Andrew, since you're first, you can go first. Uh, Brooke Shields. Your guess is Brooke Shields and Andy. I feel like, you know, it was, I don't remember much about George Clooney other than he was side by side with Noah Wiley and they showed up as like the two handsome. Oh, love they are. More than once. Um, so I, yeah, I don't I remember. That's a, yeah, that's a good was, point. Was Chandler Bing dating Julia Roberts? I don't, I don't remember that much about, um, I'm going to say Brooke Shields too. Cause I don't freaking know, man. Okay. Uh, the the correct answer was, in fact, George. You Clay. know, he's right because he was already in it once. It'd be kind of weird for him to appear again. That's that's a good point. All right. So final score is Andrew nine, Andy seven. This is shocking. Uh, Truly shocking. Thank you so much for playing. I'm sorry. I I thought Andrew would not do this well. Um, it, uh, it, this is a genuine surprise to me, Andy. Um, ask me about like, what label Liz Fair was on or, or you know, what, yeah, who, who see, or, yeah. Uh, Astaga, 1996. Come on, so it was uh, like that. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I I should have catered it more to your wheelhouse. I apologize. Uh, it was diverse. I, I, thought, I thought we would get him with the sports questions. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, yeah. But let's 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 get back to 90 days in the 90s. You know, one thing I don't recall if we addressed was the title, since uh, it has a lot to do with the constraints the on time travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us about uh, what, what does 90 days, what is the 90 days about? So, well, uh, you know, originally I was, there was a couple other working titles to this, one of which was uh, rewind. Cause I was thinking like of a, of, of like a mixtape or something, but there's, there's a couple working titles. And I think at one point um, when I was working with my editor, she went through like my second draft and was like, this is great. She get Darby gets to go back in time, but if there's not con- constraints there, and she kind of come and goes as she pleases, then it doesn't really make for a good plot. You think about, you know, when you see movies that you know with Bruce Willis or uh, I don't know Keanu Reeves in them, and there's a bomb. If the bomb doesn't go off in a certain amount of time, then you know, does he really have to go around? To get, does he ever have to get around to defusing the bomb, or can we just 
Gotta hope the bomb doesn't blow up. So there's that, there's that dynamic. And, you know, I don't have an MFA. I didn't go to college for writing. I never took any like formal writing courses. So I, I learned a lot of this stuff organically and use a lot of common sense and so on. So, but I took that note from the editor. I thought, okay, well, I, I needed to kind of tighten up my time travel method. And this is, you know, kind of early in the in the story. And, um, you know, it just kind of came up like 90 days. Like, what was her time span? It could be a year. Like, I, I came up with 90 days in the 90s. It was just kind of a catchy constraint. And then I had to kind of invent something that would limit her. So there's, um, in, in addition to the gray line, which is the time travel mechanism, it's a, you know, a train that you get. If you can find it, you just take it back to any year from 1947 to the present. So 1947 was actually when the CTA, uh, Chicago Transit Authority, was established in Chicago. So I just kind of took that as a note, too. But, um yeah, so like I, I kind of wrestled for a while with, how, okay, who dictates whether it's, is it magic? Like what, what do you, what happens? And I came up with, um, I don't own an Apple watch, but I know a lot of people would do. Maybe you guys have, have Apple watches on your wrist right now. I was just kind of thinking like, what if she found this thing that, you know, she mistakes as an Apple watch. It's not that it's actually, you know, a, a, a time travel kind of a timer, but also gives you access to the gray line. So not, you know, any schmo on the street can just find and stumble in. Uh, which would be a, another kind of interesting subplot, but they didn't go with that. So then uh, then it just kind of came up in the 90s and the 90s was a lot more catchy of a title than anything else I was working with. I was thinking like mass, massive transit would be kind of a cool, like, you know, nod to the the train. And then, but, but like you pick up, I, I would hope that if you see this book in a bookstore or online, 90 days in the 90s, you, you know exactly what it's about already. So uh, I don't have to explain. I mean, I actually did have one, um, a friend of a friend who's like, so is, is this fiction? And I'm like, well, what do you think? It's time travel. <laughs> this, as far as I know, I mean, it's, I'll let you yeah, know if I find uh, based on a true story. Book, I, yeah, I hope I won't stuck it in the past, but it was just kind of catchy. Just kind of worked. I wanted to have Darby have like, she has to make a decision whether when she goes back to 1996 or in the 90s, is she going to stay there or does she 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 can come back to the present, but she's got to make a decision. And then there's the other subplot is like, if you could travel back in time, you might go back to 1996 with the constraints that she has. She can go back to other years. And then for the music fans here, you know, she does go back to review the, the first show Nirvana played in Chicago 33 days after the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then there's some other opportunities. She, she And she makes actually a newspaper column out of it to reviewing vintage shows and only she and another person who turns up also as a time traveler in the novel know that she's actually going back to check out these shows that she, you know, like music fans would be like, yeah, I'd love to go see Jimi Hendrix play at the Isle of Wight, his laugh ever show, or I'd love to go back to Woodstock. That's something that music fans really talk about. Mm -hmm. So I have her, I kind of let her do that to a certain extent. And, but it's all got to be in the constraints of 90 days. She's got to make a decision, which she kind of sort of maybe does. Um, And then she's stuck with her, you know, making her decision about, you know, staying back in time or, or, maybe coming back to the present, but it just kind of all worked having constraints. I think, um, you know, it's like we have rules for baseball and basketball. We have gravity that kind of keeps us from floating <laughs> up in the air. Like constraints are good. And then you learn to invent around them. And I think that works in fiction too. Uh, speaking of friends, uh, Darby has a lot of interesting friends and characters in her life. We have her best friend Spiro, uh, yep. her, I would say kind of her first real love, Lena, mm-hmm. uh, one, one, the major X uh, uh, that we're introduced to. Um, we have uh, 
Sp- Spacey, who's one of her record store employees, her ru- her three roommates, uh, just a, a list of people. Tam, Tam Rye, Rye, uh, Nancy, um, were and they all have like you were saying earlier, um, like their own styles and music tastes, and they it sounds like they've become living people in your head. Or were they originally based off of? Were any of them kind of based off of people in your life, or are they just kind of? constructs of of people that you've met and uh turned into your own person people yeah there's there's a little of both i mean spiro and and rye guy who's kind of the the stiffler type of always has to be an asshole kind of a person mm-hmm. um they're actually like two of my friends where I, I took certain things about the personality and turned them way up you know so one thing that my editor told me and one thing that i've, I've learned from taking improv classes for years is if you've got the uh they think about like a character in uh very uh one movie from the 90s came out in 1999 that I love is Goodfellas. We all love Goodfellas. You know, what's the name of that character John, what Johnny two times? Like, you get the papers. Oh, yeah. That's all we know about him, but for a split second he's a character that's memorable in uh Goodfellas because he he says the same thing twice and that's sometimes you take bits of people's personality and turn them up to like 200% and that's sort of what I did with with some of the characters. So Spiro is like, he's a grad student. He's uh, Darby's best friend. Sort of when she comes back to 1996, she started hanging out with him and realizing she kind of remembers his quirks. Like that he's, he's kind of like this, uh, uh, this is a stereotype of a, or a psychograph of a lot of grad students who haven't been out in the real world. And I was one of them, like kind of a pseudo socialist, always hanging out in coffee houses, drinking coffee, you know, raging about the revolution or whatever. Uh, took that. I, I have a friend who's kind of like that, but I, of course I turned it way up. Mm-hmm. And my friend Brian, who is kind of a wise guy, I think I kind of wonder if he was the original, um, inf- kind of the the inspiration for uh, Cho, the MILF guy in American Pie. Because I actually remember Brian using the term MILF in the late 90s or mid 90s. And I was like, I don't know what the heck he was talking about. <laughs> uh, just kind of like he's a, he's a Japanese American guy who's kind of a wise ass. And so I turned turned those kind of pieces up 100 percent. Mm-hmm. when they're on the trip to Europe. So yeah, yes and no, but then there's other characters that, you know, I, I don't force it, but I feel like uh, the, the characters like the Spacey character, who's a record store employee, she's the only female employee, you know, Darby's the owner, but she, you know, she's working with two guys who are, I guess, probably like a lot of record store employees. They know everything about music. They know everything. And Spacey's kind of the smart-ass girl who's younger than them who pushes back. And I kind of pictured like Billie Eilish, like if Billie Eilish was working in a record store, you know, because she likes Green Day and a lot of 90s bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, she kind of like would be just sort of that employee that would have the last laugh and would know more than everyone else and just sort of rolls with that. And that's, I think all the characters I feel like are real. At least they would be real and presentable in the 90s as people you would know. But they also have roles and relationships with the main character. They kind of um, push her buttons and, and make her think and say and do things that are integral to the story. So yeah, we all are. We're in, I guess like a lot of writers are influenced by stuff and people that happen in real life. You know, they say you write what you know, um, but I, I got to play with that a little bit in terms of taking the, the personality quirks and turning them up way up. So. It's interesting. Brandon and I were were talking. Well, I was talking about uh, name selection in books, and uh, mm-hmm. there's something interesting where some names that an author choose, you just can't believe it. The names you've chosen seem believable i'm curious what your process is because sometimes it looks it's just like someone pointed to a name in a book and then put it in yeah. the story so so how do the names come about i'm just curious i think i played with it like uh, so if you take uh kerouac and and 
on the road, the main character is Sal Paradise. And maybe it was Paradisi, who's an Italian-American guy from New Jersey who just gets wanderlust. Uh, his his name isn't as real-sounding as his, his sidekick, Dean Moriarty, who basically starts with the story he uh, wants to go out and hang out with. Like, Dean's out in, I don't know, San Francisco or Denver somewhere, and he basically is bored in the suburbs and needs to go, like, hunt down his friend and, you know, have adventures. I think we just play with things. Um, Darby's surname was a little... I really originally was thinking it was Darby Purdue, and I was thinking like Generation Purdue, which is what they called um, uh, uh, Hemingway and some of the Americans who hung out, the writers who hung out in Paris. I thought that felt a little forced, and I wanted her name to be a little more punchy for the flap copy on the back of the book and maybe just when I was pitching uh, literary agents and so on. So I just kind of made some decisions and things evolved, and some people you don't really know their last names. Spacey actually, so I used to cover roller derby when I wrote for ESPN. And kind of one cultural thing about roller derby is a lot of people like will go by their derby names. Like, so mm. my friend Val Capone goes by Val Capone. Like she doesn't go by her birth name. And she's, 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 uh, I don't think she plays skates anymore, but she does like pro wrestling announcing, which is perfect. That's for her. Right. If you met her, I joke about Val. She's like a perfect combination between Mike Ditka and Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, that's and she she actually loves that description. So there's that dynamic, and I thought, well, I was coming up with this character. I wanted her to be, you know, kind of real to what I knew, and it kind of sounds like a real name, but it's like, you know, so you kind of assume if you read into it that she, you know, that she plays derby or she goes to derby practice, and that she must be going by that name. Otherwise, I have to come up with a name that you know, like Alice Smith or something that doesn't work in a record store. Can <laughs> try, but like, there's Rachel. Rachel's name is Rachel Murray, and that's like a totally believable, like Midwestern mm-hmm. female, you know, a woman's name. And you got to kind of balance the ones that are punchy with the ones that are just like, you know, just sort of regular yeah. the people. There you know lots of people with the last name Williams or Johnson or Scott, and but there can't be too many of them. Otherwise it gets confusing. <laughs> uh, one final question before we let you go, because we're almost out of time. Um, I, I, I was curious about the the dreaded letters because um, they're they're Darcy's favorite or not Darcy Darby's favorite band, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of play. Uh, uh, you know, read the book to find out. But uh, it are they based on any band in particular? Because you mentioned the the, the Pumpkins uh, concert where your friend was like one of seventeen people there, and there's kind of a similar anecdote in this story. Um, and also how is velvet morning, not an album name already? <laughs> Cause that, that is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I actually like crowdsourced that through my Facebook friends who the ones who were actually interested in me writing a book two, three years ago, I, I, I was coming up with names and I was kind of, you know, like you're saying about the person names, like, does, does it sound too pretentious? I think the band's original name was Frightwire, but then I had a friend <laughs> who'd be like, yeah, that seems like one of those, uh, I mean, a friend of mine who's really opinion about music like sounds like one of those douchey techno bands so i was like well okay <laughs> let me take that advisement and i just kind of crowdsourced a couple of names i think velvet morning was one and dread letters the other and people like both and i kind of came up with like okay velvet morning is the name of the album and dreaded letters just sounds like like one thing that there was not in the 90s was kind of a not okay so there are a couple trios like like green day but there wasn't really kind of like a middle of the road rock trio that was more about their instrumentation like the police in the 70s and early 80s or the Jimi Hendrix experience. Uh, I mean, they're Slater Kinney, but they weren't really well known until uh, maybe now. And there's only a certain number of us who really follow them. So I kind of just thought about a seminal mm-hmm. rock trio that's all about the musicianship 
and it just fitted befitted them with a name that sort of spoke to I don't know, maybe what they would sound like. So yeah, there wasn't it was maybe an amalgam of like concepts and but not really mimicking a certain band with a different name. I just felt like there's a place for if Darby's gonna travel back in time and she's really getting into the music, you know, maybe one of the things things is that, you know, there's this band that she kind of discovered or maybe not. And does she go back in time to sort of you know, lay her, stake her claim on this band that's now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that she was one of the first, you know, that's a music, that's another music thing. Like, if you were a music writer, you probably have a band that nobody knew about back when they were nobodies and you knew about them. And does it drive you to sort of want to reveal them to the world? So that's one of the dynamics that's, you know, a plot point that I think music fans might enjoy in this book. Because I, I also think if you're in a music scene, there's always that dynamic of like, who's the next? Nirvana, Guns N' Roses, Hendrix, you know, Strokes, whatever it is. There's always that ever-present question that pops up, and that's the the inspiration for the Dreaded Letters, the band. Okay, cool. I I, I just to get in. Um, I I was waiting for a Slater Slater Keeney reference uh, in the book, and I was n- not disappointed. Um, <laughs> the the, 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 the mixtape was interesting. I liked the the inclusion of L Seven on there as well. Um, but, uh, Thank you, uh, Andy, for for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much. Um, that, Thanks, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. And anytime I could talk about music for an hour plus, <laughs> it's good for me. Awesome. Uh, well, that's it for our September special. Uh, thank you so much to Andy Fry, author of 90 Days in the 90s, for coming on. Can you let our listeners know one more time where to find you, your book, anything that uh, should be out in the world? Yeah, I mean, if you want to check out the book or order it, you can go to 90daysin90s.com. Uh, cool part about it is that, you know, it's direct from me. I'll sign it, send you some swag, and the artist gets to keep a little bit more money. But, you know, if you're if you're uh, an avid Amazon user, you need to buy some uh, air filters for your air conditioner or some socks, and you're on there already. You can obviously find uh, 90 Days in the 90s uh, at Amazon like you could any other uh, book. And, yeah, I mean, just otherwise, other than that, check me out on uh Twitter or Insta, I'm at, at Sporty Fry with any of the end. And other than that, I'll be, uh, you know, probably at a show that you're at uh, sometime soon in the crowd somewhere. Very right, cool. And you can find all that info down in the description below. Um, and yeah, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Namely90s with 90s or find our personal accounts on Twitter at Bishwitting at Namely Andrew and tell us what you want us to talk about on future episodes. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Namely90s also with a 90s. And finally, you can contact us through our website, Namely90s.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Hot Tub Time Machine, Deezer, TuneIn, iHeart, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Brandon. That's Andrew. Thank you one final time to Andy Fry, author of 90 Days in the 90s. And we'll catch you next time. Why'd you guys pick 90s?